Thanks so much for listening in to the Saints Hill Church podcast. Our vision is to see heaven come to earth, and we do this by equipping the saints to know who they are in Christ, to walk in freedom through the truth, and to make disciples who change the world. We hope this message draws you further into relationship with our Father. And if you would like to give to the mission of Saints Hill, please visit our website at saintshill.church. And thank you. Your generosity helps to keep Saints Hill going. Now, on to the message. In you I find my joy. Welcome, everybody. My name's Alex. I'm one of the leaders here. And... Um, it's good to just be with our church this evening worshiping. Thank you, Jake. I've, it's been a while. Jake went on a trip with the worship team, and then when he got back, the day he got back, I left for a trip, and so we haven't like seen each other in a month. So it was, it was awesome just to be led by you, and, and thank you. That was really, really, really good. Um, we are going to talk about kind of like a family chat tonight. So turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. That's where we're going to be uh, this evening. 1 Peter 2, and uh, if you're new to the scriptures, um, <clears throat> this is a, it looks like one book, but it's actually a bunch of books put together, and at the very beginning of the Bible, uh, you can look up where 1 Peter is, it's in what we call the New Testament, which is the story about Jesus and what happened after he left uh, to be with the Father, and uh, so we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2, we'll eventually get there. Um, <clears throat> I want to talk a little bit this evening about why Saints Hill is the way that it is. Um, I, I, I think in a sense, this message is almost a message about you guys. I was thinking about our church this past week. I was thinking about all of you who I have a relationship with and, and know. And uh, those of you who, who I even maybe don't know, but I see here and I see your faith and I see what you guys are chasing after. And um, it just really got me thinking, what makes Saints Hill tick? You know, there's so much, you know, when you plant a church, we planted this church about three years ago. And when you plant a church, you have all of the idealism in the world. We're going to do this. And you got whiteboards and you got lines going from boxes to other boxes and then arrows pointing this direction. Then we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And, and, and all of it is, is great. You should do that. But when you plant a church, there's an unknown variable that's the largest variable of all. And, uh, and that's the Holy Spirit. And then there's the second variable, and that's you guys. It's the people. It's where you plant in the cultural context that you plant in. And um, I, I have just come to so appreciate you and so appreciate this family that we have. Um, see, I, I personally have never been a part of a church like this one or been a part of a family like this. And uh, so it just got me thinking, what, what makes this family run? What makes this family tick? Many uh, of you will know that we have 10 core values. Um, if you've been around here for any length of time, you know that we have 10 core values. And um, e each of these values are really the spoken culture uh, of our church. It's, it's us verbalizing, here's what we want the culture to be like. And then hopefully eventually it becomes the experienced culture as you read through those values. Like, man, they really do value these things. And I've seen that show up here and I've seen it show up there. Um, but, but here's kind of how I see each of these values. So uh, next slide. I see each value acting as a door to how we will interact with and pursue God and his promises over our church. That's what each of those values represents. And so if you, don't, if you aren't familiar, we've actually taught now twice through all 10 core values. One uh, time we did that, was the, it was the first series we ever did at the church three years ago. And then we just did it last fall again. And uh, those 10 core value cards are out in the lobby. They're all, I can like see 
them through the window right now. They are, yeah, just Nick, just kind of point towards over your, over your shoulder where they are. There they are. Um, they're out there. And if you've never been exposed to them and, you, and you're curious about the church, go grab a little envelope. In that envelope will be all 10 of our core values and then all 10 declarations that go with each uh, one of those values. Um, and so th- that's all real and good. Listen to the uh, podcast. It's online. You can check it out there. But I sort of want to address something different tonight than the core values. What I want to address is the mood of Saints Hill. The mood. The, the kind of the feel or uh, in, in, in Gen Z talk, the vibe. The vibe of Saints Hill. See, I, I sense in this house a mood of joy. I sense in this house a, a mood of expectation. I don't know anybody who's coming to this church just like, this is the church I go to to just kind of kick back and see what happens. It's like, man, people come and they are ready to enter and they're expectant. Uh, I, I sense a mood of hope and of peace. I sense a mood of, of power uh, even. And, and when we planted, I had the dream that our church would look like this. I, I, I literally, my dream was that we would be a place where, where joy and hope and peace were present, not because we live in such an amazing place, but because his, the presence of God was just so real. You couldn't not have hope. You're like, I've been just getting, I've been rubbing up against the hopeful one. How can I not have hope? I've been rubbing up against the faithful one. How can I not have faith? It's just in the air. It's, it's in, the, in the mood of the church. And, and so what, what has happened is that we've actually developed into a church where that's the mood. It's, it's, I, I, this is the title of the message. It's the mood of faith. It's what, what, is, what is the mood of faith like? I think we're experiencing it. Now, I don't mean, just to clarify, I don't mean a mood that leads to faith. Because I don't know about you, if you've ever tried to get in the mood to, be, to act in faith or to take a, take a risk here or do that, it's tough to get in that mood. <laughs> That's a fleeting mood. Uh, what I'm talking about is the mood that comes from faith. The mood that's the atmosphere, if you will, that's developed around people of faith. The, the joy, the peace, the honor that I experience, I know many of you have experienced here as well. Now, it doesn't mean that difficulty doesn't happen. We're not ignoring difficulty. Um, it, it could be present at any given time. There's people sitting to your right and to your left who have difficulty in their lives right now. Real serious life issues that they're going through. It, it's just that, we are called believers. And that radical dependence on God, when everyone else is running for the hills, is the way that we want to spur one another on. So there's a lot of times where I, where I, I, I think I could, uh, I could get up here and I could kind of bleed on everybody and be like, these are the issues of my life and I'm just such an authentic pastor. My job is not to be an authentic pastor. My job is to set a demonstration of what it looks like to lean into faith and to say, even when it doesn't make sense, even when I'm going through difficulty, I still have my eyes in the, in the, in the, on the person of Jesus and I'm following him and let's do it together. So, so, so that's, that's, I think, where some of this mood and this sense has come from. And I think um, because you all know, uh, the, one of the reasons why we have this mood is that you all know and are growing in what Peter says about the church right here. So look down at your Bibles, First uh, Peter chapter 2, and let's start in verse 4. It says this. He, he's speaking to the church. He says this. As you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, speaking of Jesus, 
You also, Mariah, get a kick of this because you just got up here and said this very thing. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. Isn't that interesting? To be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. He's quoting prophets of old. He says, now to you who believe, this stone is precious. I mean, if Jesus is all you got, it's a pre- he's a precious living stone. But to those who do not believe, and he quotes the prophets again, he says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So you didn't think you needed to build your life on him? You don't believe in him? That's fine, but I'm telling you, he's the cornerstone. Your, your house will fall without him. And a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. Verse nine, but you, church, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare, you're like, this church does these weird things called declarations. What's that about? Oh, Peter was onto it. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people. Do you remember that? But now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy. Do you remember that? (laughs) But now you have received mercy. This is just a fantastic passage about the identity of the people of God. What an incredible passage. And I would argue that it is knowing these truths that leads to a specific mood, if you will. I mean, think of what this passage says to be true about the family of disciples. Here's a slide here. But you are a chosen people. What does that mean? Well, chosen means you're wanted. Have you ever felt unwanted? I have. The scriptures say God had a choice. He chose you a royal priesthood that you may declare the praises of God. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. In other words, you have a family and a purpose. And so guess what? You can be secure. You can be secure. You don't need to go out and prove yourself. Like I'm going to try and really make something of my life. No, you don't need to make something of your life. You already have a life. It's to declare his praises. Does your life do that? You, you don't have to go prove to a group of people that you're actually worth something to belong. No, no, no. You have a family. You already have a family. It's the family of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What does that mean? That means you're full. You didn't receive just a little bit of mercy. He didn't say, and everybody got a little bit of mercy. He said, you received mercy himself. It's fullness. Do you see what is true for the people of God? For the people of God, all of their love, all of their security, All of their fullness comes from one person, and that's God. It's knowing him. It's hearing from him. So so here's what I want to show you tonight. This mood that we have here is not random. I think (laughs) we've had some people who are like, man, this is a great church. You kids just got lucky. No, no, no. It's not luck. No, it's truth. It's standing for truth. It's believing truth. It's it's an incredible thing, and what it produces is just beautiful. I think that we're experiencing an atmosphere that is a direct result of people who know the truth and who hold on to the truth. And and so tonight, I want to talk about these three attributes that I see present in you all. 
these three attributes um, that, that lead to really taking hold of these truths that we just read and then applying them. So, so here's, what I wanna, here's what I wanna do tonight, three points. I know, I'm a pastor. Three points, here we go. People who hear, people who hold on to what they hear, and people who share what they hear. These are the three attributes that I think have made the biggest impact in making Saints Hill what it is. It's people, you all, who hear, people who hold on to what they hear and they don't let it be removed from them, and then people who share what they hear. I see this. I see a people who hear. See, the, the first reason for this mood is connection to his voice. Make no mistake. The first reason for all the faith that you see, all the energy that you see, all the passion that you see, all the surrender that you see, it's connection to his voice. There is a, a reason behind the surrender, a reason behind the risk, and it's his voice. It isn't people who are perfect or people who have less sin in their lives than other people. They've just really moved on the path of sanctification more than the average person. Um, it's not even people who are really disciplined and, and really good at disciplining their lives. No, the joy, the peace, the hope is a result of his voice being present in your lives. From, from the very beginning, if you kind of put your little, you know, your Bible cap, Bible theology cap on, from the very beginning in Genesis, one could surmise that sin entered into the cosmos because of a lack of listening. Remember, Eve is there. She's in front of a serpent. The serpent can talk. We'll get, well, actually, we'll talk about this in October. Uh, and the serpent says, this is a take on reality. You should eat this, and then you'll be what you deeply desire to be. Rather than listening to what God had, first of all, said about who they were made in his image, or rather than even asking God, what do you think about what this snake said? They actually listened to the snake. It's listening that sustains us. So, so think about this. God then in Genesis sets humans up to flourish by not only finding our value, but our purpose and our worth, our life direction, all from his voice rather than from externals. And yet so many of us, we continue to look externally for who we are, externally for what we should do, externally for what the world thinks about us, when that was, that's the oldest trick in the book. It's the oldest trick in the book. It's as old as Eve. See, what spoke us into being, remember God says he, he creates mankind in his image, he then breathes life into mankind. What spoke us into being is the very thing that continues to keep us alive. We stay close to his voice and we stay on the path of life. I pro, I, I, I'm telling you this, any time in my life that I find that I'm losing life, <laughs> that I'm not actually living into what God would have for me, it's a very simple thing. My wife just did this for me just a, couple, a week ago oh, I think it's a voice issue. What voice are you listening to? Jesus puts it this way when he was tempted by the devil in, uh, in Matthew chapter four. He says, man does not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the Father. It's a life issue to listen. And I believe that the difference between flourishing in life or floundering is just simply the level of voice that you have, his voice that you have in your life. See, he ultimately wants us in relationship with him where we get our hope and our joy and our peace and our purpose all from the same place, from him. He's not like, I'll give you hope, but as far as purpose comes, you gotta go out and find it. 
No, he actually wants to be a part of designing what are you going to do with your life and where are you going to invest your time and are you listening? See, what can happen when you get your identity from external sources is that you may find yourself needing to control the behavior and speech of other people in order to feel secure in yourself. If you're constantly looking for who am I? What do they say? Who do they say that I am? You will end up being a person who needs to control. See, when that, whenever that person maybe disrespects you or they hurt you, you actually need them to say sorry before you can feel whole again. You need the apology. Or maybe when you see a politician who's in power, who has a view that you perceive to devalue your life, you need that person to lose power in order to remain feeling okay about yourself. Or, or, or maybe, this probably doesn't happen here, but when the pastor says something that you disagree with, not here, you actually need them to agree with you or else you're gonna go church shopping. See, the problem is that if security in your identity is tied to the actions or words of others, you will always need to control others in order to remain whole. And, and if you've ever been there, it is miserable. <laughs> Isn't that miserable? I've been there and it's miserable. I just need them to do this. It's miserable. Why is it so miserable? It's just not how you were designed to live. You weren't designed to function that way. You were designed to actually get all of your source from him. <laughs> and, and, and so that when you're around other people, guess what you get to be? You get to just be a blesser. You get to just be a giver. I actually watch this in my daughter. It's just an amazing thing. I was just thinking about this. She will walk into a room full of children. This is, I'm not saying, not here, other places. She'll walk into a room full of children and all the kids will be like this. She's kind of looking at her, and this is her face. <laughs> she's like the ultimate joy giver. She's like, I, she's, like, she's like, you're screaming and crying, and you're so upset? Let me, let me love you. Let me touch you. Let me hug you. She is so excited. And I, th- I thought, man, that is exactly what it is to be a believer. To be a believer is to be the source for the people around you. And there's many believers who are not the source for the people around them. They're actually, they're the drain for the people around them. And, and they're like, why, why? I, I always feel like people are always letting me down. No, 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 they're not letting you down. You just haven't gone to him, the one who can't let you down. You haven't gone to him to actually get filled up so that you can be the one who never lets anybody down. Because you're always pointing to the one who has the source. They're always pointing to the one who's full of joy, full of hope, full of peace. It's not you. So can you hear? Because this is what I've seen. I've seen our church, you guys, hear. And you're full because of it. Two things of importance here that I want to say before we move on to the next thing. I want to say is that his words, what he's written, are how we acquire a taste for his voice. So if you're like, I don't ever hear from God. It's like, well, do do you read what he's already written? Because it's how you learn what he sounds like. It's how you almost learn the nonverbal communication of God. Is you, you read his, his words. I, I remember, uh, so when I, when I became a Christian, I was 17 years old. And I remember it, it wasn't through the Bible. I felt, it's my story. I'm the authority on it. I felt like I heard from God. I really did. I felt like God spoke to me and I just couldn't deny it. It's like, that is so nothing that I would ever think or ever say. And he just spoke into my life in such a powerful and profound way that I, I, couldn't, I couldn't shake it. It was like, I think that's God. And so do you know what I did? Because I grew up in a family that believed in God and, and, and trusted the scriptures. I, I started reading the Bible for myself. And I remember just thinking, 
oh my word, every page, it's him. (laughs) The voice I'm hearing, it's him. And he doesn't contradict himself. It's him. So here's what I want to say. If you are hearing from God and it's untethered from the text, it's not from him. It's not from him. If you hear something that doesn't square with what he said, I think there is a reason why you should doubt what you thought you heard. We, we, we're a charismatic church. It's, it's just the way that it is. And uh, <laughs> that's a funny way of saying it. I'm happy about it. I know some of you are maybe not as happy about it, but it's a charismatic church. And, and, and so we, we love to hear from God. Just make sure that you're hearing from God. <laughs> make sure that you're hearing from him first. The second thing that I want to say on hearing from God is just, I want to emphasize the importance of the people around you. And, and actually, having a community of faith that can help you discern what you're hearing. Um, one of my favorite passages on hearing from God is on the mind of Christ. Some of you guys know the passage. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and it says, you know, who could discern the thoughts of God except for the, his spirit? And then it says, oh, but we have the spirit, and we have the mind of Christ. What does that mean? <laughs> I think I'll spend the rest of my life trying to, trying to understand what it means that we have the mind of Christ. But I, but I do want to say this. That we is plural. We have the mind of Christ. Believers, people who are filled with his Holy Spirit have the mind of Christ. Not, not just me. Like Some people, some of you have the mind of Christ and others don't. No, no, no. We have the mind of Christ. And so it is just so important that we actually go to one another and say, what do you think about what I'm hearing? I'm hearing this. Should I do it? I'm hearing this. Should I trust it? I just got this prophetic word. What do you think about that? People that you trust, people who are filled with the Holy Spirit and love his word, and who are able to help you discern uh, what he's saying. This is, this, is what, um, my, this is the role that my wife often plays for me. Is, uh, see, I need my wife uh, to be able to hold on to, to truth when I can't. And she does this constantly for me. I I need to have somebody in my life who's fighting for truth so that when I'm in the dumps and I'm listening to the serpent, she can go, I don't think that's true. That's not what he said. Or are you sure about that? Because remember what you preach. Now here's the problem with being a a preacher is that I get to go home and she's like, yeah, see, that is so different than what you just said on stage. Um, (laughs) I need it. Um, So this is the first thing that I believe has led to the mood of faith here is hearing. People who hear. Secondly, you hear and then you hold on to what you hear. This is what I see in your guys' lives. It's just beautiful. See, it's not just enough to hear. You could have heard us just read uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, 4 through 10. But then the question is, you heard it, but the question is, do you believe it? <laughs> like, do you really believe it? We're called believers, which mean we believe something. It means we're tethered to something. We adhere to something. I, I remember when I, when I first saw just how important it was, uh, what I believed. Uh, I was pastoring a group of high schoolers uh, in Portland, and I was noticing just how much in my own life and in their life stage, how identity was the most important thing. Who do you think you are? <laughs> it, it, it determined for these high schoolers, it determined the subculture that they were interested in, You could see it. You could see them change their belief about who they were and then they adopted in the same year a whole new subculture, a whole new style of dress, a whole new genre of music that they were into. Like that. Why? Because they don't know who they are and they're wondering who they are and so they're searching, trying out different things. But who am I? Who am I? 
the people they dated, the aspirations they had, all were almost decided in advance by the way that they saw themselves. My wife loves to use this quote. This is such a good one. This is Henry Ford. Whether you think you can or you can't, you're right. (laughs) What do you believe about yourself? What do you believe about what you've heard? And then I saw, I remember in this time of my life, this is about four or five years ago, I saw just how uh, important identity and belief about identity was in the scriptures. We don't have time for the full reading. I tried to work it in. It wasn't going to work. But many of you guys know the story of Abraham and specifically the story of Genesis 15 and what happens in Abraham's life in Genesis 15. Um, Yahweh, God, that's the personal name for God. Yahweh uh, comes to this man, Abraham, and he suggests something to Abraham that is really controversial for Abraham specifically. He says to Abraham, you're going to have some kids. Now, the the problem in the story at this point is that Abraham is really, really old. And his wife is really, really old. And they just cannot have kids. It's physically impossible to have children. In fact, their entire life, you you can imagine what it would have been like to, and some of you have gone through this, uh, to, to have tried time and time again to get pregnant tried time and time again to have children, to, to start a family, and, and, and the painful miscarriages and, and, and the loneliness of looking at their friends' families as they grew and increased, and there's just remained the two of them. And, and so you, you have to imagine, God comes to Abraham and he says, you're the kind of guy who's going to have kids. He's like, hmm, that's not been my experience. And so so I put it this way to these high schoolers when I was teaching through this. I said, imagine this. You have two realities in your life, just like Abraham had these two realities. It's very Christopher Nolan of me, I know. I was down with Gen Z. And here's your reality. Reality one for Abraham is this, the very sensible reality. You're not the kind of guy who has kids. You're 90 years old. Your word's not mine, Abraham. You said your wife's body is as good as dead. Okay, Um, God comes to you and says, but I have a different reality. Reality two. And what is this reality? You're the kind of guy who's going to have kids. Hmm. Reality one and reality two. And if you're Abraham, which reality would you believe? (laughs) You have 90 years of brain formation, 90 years of experiential evidence that you're the kind of guy who doesn't have kids. And all of a sudden, in walks Yahweh, and he says, but you're going to have kids. It's two very, very conflicting realities. And what happens is that Abraham believes reality too. Here's what happens. He took him outside. He said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Here it is. Abraham believed the Lord. And he credited it to him as righteousness. And I remember reading that. I remember the day and it just gripping me. Oh my word. His belief was righteousness. How do you get righteous? You believe God. It's the same. How, did he, how is Abraham saved? By doing the same thing that we do. We believe Jesus. We trust in what he's done. 
in his very crazy reality, that we'll have eternal life with him forever, that we can experience, until then we get to live with his spirit, able to do what he did when he walked on the face of the earth. And I remember reading this and just thinking, oh, this is everyone's choice when God walks into their lives. Will you believe what your reality, one, has told you, or can you muster the faith to believe his take on you and your future? Can you do it? The Bible says, very simply, it is righteous to agree with God's reality over what has become sensible in your reality. And I believe this is the core battle for our identity. It is the war of our age. When you hear, whose voice is it, and what do you believe? If it's his voice, do you believe it? If it's his words, do you believe it? A royal priesthood? Really? Me? I'm not sure about that. Paul talks about how this is waging war in the mind, how important this battle is. He says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. So Paul, in this passage, he's specifically talking about a war that Christians are going to wage. He's like, make no mistake, it's not just going to be all peace for you. There's a war for you to wage. And he says, but it's not, you're not going to wage this war the way that the world wages war. He says this next. Next slide, he says, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. So, so here's what he's saying. The weapons of the world think violence, think name-calling, shame, lying, all the, all the tools of manipulation. It's the subtle dig. Those actually have no ability to destroy the real enemy. Why? Because they're actually the tools of the enemy. But we have weapons that are able to demolish strongholds. You're like, that's a churchy word. What does that mean? Well, he explains it in the next verse. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So what does that sound like? <laughs> these strongholds, these ideas, these pretensions, if we can put that back up, that would be awesome, verse five. Um, th- these arguments, because those are all the things that pop up in my mind every time I read truth. All the reasons why it's probably not true for me. See, this sounds to me a lot like Abraham. Reality one, and here's reality two. So what is the weapon? It's the ability to recognize what is a lie about God and about your salvation, about your identity, and to have the confidence to tear it down. Do you have the confidence to tear it down? (laughs) See, I think there's many here who you actually know the truth, you've heard the truth, you've even believed some of the truth, but you have allowed the enemy to use your experience and your behavior to bully you into a lack of confidence of actually taking hold of the truth. Same here, me, I've been there, I've done the same thing. It is such warfare, it is such mental battle, but it is so important that we are strong against this in the age of, ah, information. That's the age that we're existing in. Lots of information, lots of realities coming at you from all sides. Whose voice will you believe and how will you fight for it? See, at at the core of of what we're talking about is is the process of actually becoming Christ-like. I want to just kind of paint this picture for you for a second. If I believe that I am one way, I, my actions will, will oftentimes confirm that I am that way. 
So imagine this. Imagine that I am struggling not to lie. I have a real hard time not telling lies, not exaggerating. But I'm a believer. I'm a follower of Jesus. He's the truth, and I'm a liar. If every time I lie, I get down on myself, and my thinking goes something like this, I'm a sinner saved by grace. The problem is that my actions become confirmation of what I think about myself. Well, after all, I am a sinner, so no surprise here. Of course I'm lying. But let's say that I'm struggling not to lie. I don't want to lie. I'm a believer. I follow Jesus. But I have a commitment to the theology of my identity being in Christ. Which says, I was a sinner saved by grace, but that grace is such a big deal It didn't just cover me, the sinner. It actually changed me, and now I'm a saint who's learning to bring all of my fears under the lordship of Jesus' love. Well, now what happens is that my motivations can actually be changed, not just my behavior. If you are functioning, if you you only believe, well, I'm a sinner, and so all my sin is just confirmation that I am a broken person, I'm a broken person. Well, guess what? Your motivations never get changed because you always have an excuse for your behavior. The best you can do is just behavior modification. Oh, don't do that. Okay, I'll try my best not to do that. But if you say, okay, no, 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 I'm not just a sinner who was saved by grace. I'm a sinner who was transformed and then empowered by grace. And now I'm a saint full of the Holy Spirit in the language of Hebrews 10. Perfect. Take it up with Hebrews 10, not me. Um, or whoever wrote Hebrews, thank you. Um, well, then guess what? We actually have to deal with my motivations. So I get to the root of the problem, which is fear. I lie because I fear what telling the truth would make people think about me. And now guess what I get to do? I get to go to my good father and I get to say, Father, thank you for making me perfect. Thank you for making me whole. Thank you for walking alongside me, teaching me how to live into my identity even when my behavior is out of line of it. And now I recognize that I have been living according to fear. And so would you please shed your love into this part of my life where I have so much fear that I actually would be able to tell the truth and not care what people think about me or worry if I'm going to be accepted by them or not because I know that I'm fully accepted by you. Do you see the difference? Some of you don't see the difference. I hope you can. It's so important. It's so important. There's many, just for a moment, there are many discipleship programs in the church that basically function around the idea of fear. Be afraid of your sin. Don't do it. You should be Christ-like. You're a Christian after all. It's not biblical. It isn't. There is an identity that comes before an expectation of our behavior changing. And the identity is how we make the change. We don't make the, the identity change by changing our behavior to prove our identity. I don't need to do that. I don't need to prove anything. There's a spiritual reality over my life. I'm in him. Now I get to spend the rest of my life exploring what that means in the various areas of my life where maybe I fall short of where God would want me to be. Okay, here we go, here we go, here we go. So I think St. Sil has this mood that we have of faith because there are many of you who are waging that battle. You're waging that war. And you're going, even when I don't feel like it, even when my whole life says otherwise, I choose to take you at your word and I choose to believe what's true about me and I'll tear down every lofty opinion. I'll demolish every stronghold. Any pretension that raises itself against this knowledge about being in Christ, I will fight. Lastly, you are people who not only hear and who hold on to what you hear, 
You're a people who share what you hear. And this is probably the most important thing tonight for our church family's health. And it's funny because, you know, I dreamed of a church uh, when we were first planting, first thinking about planting a church even, I dreamed of a church that, that looked like this one. I, I can't leave here on a Sunday without somebody giving me a prophetic word. I can't do it. I can't leave here on a Sunday without somebody, I mean, this is you, Steve, handing me like a slip of paper. I, get more, I got more slips of paper on my desk from Steve than I have like books. Um, I, I, it is constant. People will stop me. Can I just share a testimony real fast? Can I just tell you about this healing? Can I just tell you about what just happened in my life? I was just in Las Vegas and somebody's neck got healed and I was just at a gas station and this guy just became a believer and I'm like, oh, that's the gas station attendant who I always like get in arguments with. Oh, uh, that's amazing. You're so much better than me. And, and, and it's just like crazy. And I was praying for this amount of money to come in because we were really struggling and that exact amount of money came in. It's like constantly. Too much fruit. <laughs> Almost. It's sinking the boat. I'm like, I don't have enough time to listen to all these stories. It's incredible. Testimonies, stories, something that you're learning. Here's what I'm really learning with the Lord. It's just absolutely amazing. And so I just want to say thank you. Just thank you. It, it's, it fills me so much. And it encourages me so much. Emily and I, we talk all the time about this church. Like, we're led by you guys. Like, we have the, the honor, I guess, of leading this. But man, I guess if we're all just pointing to Jesus, we lead each other. It's this mutual pastoring that's taking place that's just so powerful. And uh, I, I dreamed of this. I, I really dreamed that this would be the case. Um, but, but for those of you who are new to this idea of prophecy, I, I specifically want to talk about it because when I, when, I, when I talk about people who hear and people who hold on to what they hear and then people who share what they hear, I'm really talking about the prophetic. And I'm really talking about prophecy. And I know that for some of you, you're like, you've been prophesying since you were like four that's awesome. I'm glad. Uh, but there's a lot of questions that I get about prophecy. It's probably the main thing that I have people who are like, I love the church. I sense God there. What is prophecy? I just can't really wrap my head around it. Um, and, and so I want to lay out a small theological uh, treatise, if you will. Okay, so phones out. Get ready to take a picture of this slide. I think it's worth it. Uh, here's the theological uh, roadmap to why we believe in the prophetic. Okay, here it is. One, we believe that God speaks. Okay, so we actually believe that God uh, speaks. And, and not only that, but he speaks to people not based on their merit. So anybody from Abraham to Balaam, the guy who's like trying to curse the Israelites, he heard from God. Uh, thirdly, we believe that he still speaks. Um, I, I can't find a single passage in the New Testament that says God's gonna stop speaking and here's when it is. It just doesn't exist. He's still speaking. Uh, number four, we are told to earnestly desire to prophesy which means try, <laughs> just try, I guess. It's like 1 Corinthians 14 says, you should be prophesying. Okay, I guess we're gonna try then. And that all prophecy in 1 Corinthians 14, verse three, all prophecy is strengthening, encouraging, and it's comforting. Just pow powerful stuff. Uh, number five, here's what we believe, which means that prophecy, according to Paul, has an invitational aspect to it. It invites people to be strengthened, to be hopeful, to step into a future. So it's not saying this will be your future. Although I've heard some words that even get close to that and have been true. But most of the time what I've experienced is I think that this is true about you. Does that resonate? And then the option is, oh no, reality one, reality two, which will I believe? And as you step into reality two, you step into the future God has for you. Uh, and then number six, so many believers, when they have a sense that something, a verse they read earlier, a dream, a phrase that comes to mind, a picture, is important for someone, they share in faith because it could be key to that person's surrender and growth. 
Okay, so this is our treatise on prophecy. Why do we speak in encouraging words? Why do we even take time to listen to ask God if he's saying something? Well, we have the mind of Christ. Maybe he's intermingled his thoughts with ours. And wouldn't it be amazing if we had access to those thoughts and were able to then step into those things? What an incredible thing. And so this is the foundation. But there's, there's really two specific questions that I want to address outside of this, uh, outside of this, this treatise. And, that, and that's these two. How do you know it's, not, it's from God? How do you know it's from God, what you're saying? And, and there's just a very simple answer to this. We don't. <laughs> we don't. I don't know if it's from God or not. You don't know it's from God or not. Guess what? Here's the best we can say. I think this could be. I want to put forth that this could be from God. It may just be me, but I keep having this thought in my mind, or I keep thinking of this verse when I think about you. Can I share it with you? And does, does that actually resonate or mean anything to you? It's in humility. We, all we know is this. We're all supposed to prophesy, according to 1 Corinthians 14, that God is still speaking, and I'd love to know what he's saying. And if there will be false prophets that we should be on the watch for, that means that there's going to be real prophets as well. See, I, I have to be honest, and this is really the crux of answering this question, because I get this one all the time. I am functioning, and many of you as well, are functioning under a revelation of God as a good father. And so because of that, I don't believe that I have to get everything right. Uh, or that my security in salvation is solely based on my correct theology. Or if I said something that was from God, but it really wasn't from God, and so I'm in jeopardy, or I've sinned, or something like that. I'm not saying it's not important to get it right. No, no, no. We want to get it right, and so we speak in humility. What I'm saying is that I'm a son first, not a theology student first. So, so I get to take risks and get things wrong because ultimately my goal is to be in relationship with him and to learn along the way and invite others to do the same. My ultimate goal is actually not to get it all right. Like, I'm going to be the most amazing prophet. I'm going to get everything right. No, no, no. I'm a son first. I'm a son first. So I get to explore with him, like, is this what you're saying? And this verse really means something to me? Could it mean something to them? I'm going to share it with them and just risk what's the worst that, nobody dies. What's the worst that happens? It wasn't for them. <laughs> That's okay. That's all right. I find that, uh, that we give away whatever is saving us. I find that many doctrine hunters, they're in the YouTube comments, who are always looking for false prophets, they're giving away what is saving them. You didn't get that. People who are super hyper-focused on, is that right? And is that true? And actually this, do you know how much this can be interpreted? A lot. There's a lot of different interpretations. I didn't know this until I got to college. Whoa! It's not all just evangelical out there. Uh, there's a lot of interpretations. And I find that people who are constantly concerned with, no, this is the right thing. You better not say that. You're charismatic. You believe in healing. Don't you know that healing is only for apostles to do? There's no more apostles and you think you're a capital A apostle writing scripture. No, no, no. Nobody is saying that. They're just saying that maybe it's possible that the scriptures aren't just true. They're also livable. They're experienceable. They're giving away what saved them and that is correct doctrine, not a person. If it's a person who saved you, and especially if it's a person with the character of Yahweh, 
then we get the great privilege of making mistakes and receiving grace along the way as we please him in our risk-taking. What a beautiful thing. Secondly, I hear this question about prophecy a lot. Why doesn't it sound more like those Old Testament prophets? See, we have examples of prophecy in here, and you guys are always so kind. You're always so encouraging. You're not actually like, there's no hellfire and brimstone in your prophecy. Why doesn't it sound more like Old Testament prophets? And I just want to say this. It would be wrong to use the solutions of the Old Covenant when we have the solution of Jesus at our fingertips. It doesn't sound like Old Testament prophecy because we have a New Testament solution. Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets. What does that mean? We need different kinds of prophets than what we had in the past. In the Old Covenant, the severity of sin is being confronted with the severity of righteousness. In the New Covenant, it's a whole different call. (laughs) The goal isn't just for people to repent or you'll burn. It's repent into this beautiful and glorious future God has for his children. Repent into relationship. It's kindness that leads to repentance. See, we are in a new covenant with a new opportunity, and it is that new opportunity that we repent into when we hear the prophetic word. That's why prophecy matters so much. That's why when you hear, and when you hold on to what you hear, and then you share what you hear, it's not just for you. It's inviting an entire community of faith into the future that God has for them. I don't normally, I want to end this way. I don't, you're like, when is this guy going to be done? Uh, I don't normally uh, share my prophetic words that I get personally in my life um, from the stage. They're really private. A lot of them I'm simply just working through. Um, but there are two prophetic words that I've gotten in the past month that have been, been two of maybe the most um, important and clear prophetic words, I believe, for my life in the season that I'm in. One was from uh, Lauren Stillinger. Uh, You gave me a word, I don't know, three or four weeks ago. She saw an image of a sword that was coming up through my stomach and into my mind. And there were some ideas kind of attached with that, but instantly I resonated. And she basically said, hey, look, I think something's going on on the gut level right now. And there's some pruning and some cutting that's happening in the gut level. And you don't need to feel bad. You don't need to feel ashamed of of what, you know, you're experiencing in your life. Um, Just know that he's at work. Super encouraging. Then then I got an email from Sarah Cuevas, who's in with the babies tonight. And um, she said, you know, I saw this image and I can't get out of my mind for you. It's of a Vanitas painting. Have you ever heard of a Vanitas painting? I had to look it up and I like art. Uh, They're paintings of these little vignettes. And in the vignette, they'd often have like a melting candle and a a skull maybe next to the candle and maybe like some flowers or some nice bird feathers or something in this vignette. And the whole vignette's purpose was to basically show the fleeting nature of beauty, of vanity. The skull reminds you, to dust you'll return. The candle reminds you of the passage of time. And though it may be beautiful, the flowers are beautiful, the feathers are beautiful, whatever it is, Just know that all earthly beauty is going to end. And she said, I think that God is maturing you and growing you and your understanding of what is true beauty and how you curate true beauty in your life, not just vanity. Yeah, that really resonated very, very strongly. 
with me. And, and so you know what I did is I, I went to our staff and I, at one of our staff meetings, I said, hey, I got these words. You're my community of faith. I got these words. Would you help me discern what these mean for my life? What do you think they mean? And we took time and we listened and each of them went around and said, I think this might mean this. I think that what God's doing is he's changing your gut reaction. I'm like, oh, please. Uh, anger is my gut reaction constantly. I need help with that, Lord. Thank you for setting a target in this season. And I, and I think what he's doing is he's, getting you, he's pulling you away from the vanity of youth and into the maturity of eternal beauty. And I go, oh my gosh, I don't know if what, for whatever reason for me, 30, it was like a midlife crisis of like, oh my gosh, wow, I'm gonna die someday. And I really have to like deal with this reality that everybody ex- is gonna experience this at some point. And, and what prophecy does is it, at its best is it does this. It brings clarity to the season that you're in and it pulls you into God's future for you as you say, oh, I kind of see what you're doing and I trust you. I'm in the community of faith, people who hear, people who have held on to what they hear and people who share what they hear and it's produced this mood that I can't shake. I trust you, God. I trust you. Let's all stand together. Thanks for listening. And if we can do anything to help you, or if you want to stay in the loop with what is going on in and around the church, you can follow us on Instagram, download the Saints Hill app in the App Store, or visit our website, saintshill.church. And you're so much easier.